words, you know, uh, where beside the king I walk, for there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. That's great. Uh, will you take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 11? Proverbs chapter 11. As we get towards the end of October, we tend to think a little bit more on some Reformation themes. And uh, we've been working our way through some of the Proverbs. I'm not too sure how long I'll continue in Proverbs. Uh, but certainly for the next few weeks, some of the themes uh, that pertain to uh, the Reformation. And then November will be upon us, and before we know it, Christmas. So, so Proverbs chapter 11, and beginning to just read verse 4. This really is the verse that I want to consider with you. Verse 4, but we'll just read verses 4 through 11. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge the righteous are delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown." And we'll conclude just there, and may God bless to us the reading of his sacred word. Now let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we have sought to praise you and to exalt you and to magnify you, to thank you, uh, to be grateful for our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, he who has accomplished our redemption, to thank you that he is our King, our Sovereign, the one who is seated at your right hand, who reigns, who rules, and who shall come again in great power and glory to take us to himself. We desire above all this morning that each one of us may comprehend and know this Savior, this Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you that you've given us your word, that we may know these things, that we may comprehend them. We thank you that you are God and that you do not lie and that your promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so we look forward and look to you this morning that the Holy Spirit would help us in all that we seek to do, help us in the proclamation of the word and the listening of the word, all to the praise and the glory of Jesus. These things we pray and ask with thanksgiving in the holy name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, you know, verse 4, as you see it there in Proverbs chapter 11, surely uh, just directs our way to a standard of righteousness that uh, is that which delivers. That's what the, 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 or the proverb says. The righteous, uh, deli righteousness delivers from death, and on the other hand, wealth or riches do not profit in the day of wrath or do not profit in the day of judgment. 
And whenever we think about the day of judgment or the day of wrath, we are confronted with the fact that that is a day that belongs to God and only to God. And therefore we know, since we know that, know that we will render account and all will be accountable. All will come to the judgment seat of God. In this passage, I think one of the the key things is there's this great contrast, isn't there, between the righteous and the unrighteous or between the righteous and the wicked. And back and forth, Solomon goes in uh, Proverbs chapter 11, contrasting the, the standard of the righteous, the things the righteous do, and the things that the wicked do. Or to put it another way, what the righteous are like and what the wicked are like. And so as we come to this verse, we discover that on the one hand, that which may be accounted of great value among people today, riches, wealth, prosperity, is of no value in the day of judgment, in the day of wrath. But the only thing that delivers us from death is, according to Solomon here, righteousness delivers us from death. And surely, again, this is just simply an introduction or a pointing to the idea of being right with God or of justification before God. Certainly, there's no question that justification is uh, one of the great central themes of the gospel. It is a foundation theme, a fundamental theme, a vital theme, a foundation for our faith. In fact, it begins with faith and continues uh, to give evidence of itself throughout our lives in our sanctification. In fact, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 just simply makes the, the, the profound statement that we are justified by faith. And the consequence of being justified by faith is that we have peace with God. And so, you know, when I read those verses, verses like Romans 5 verse 1, they are profound, aren't they? Because here you have the Apostle Paul who sought a righteous standard of his own by keeping the law and totally failed, could not do it, though he was exceedingly righteous as far as that was concerned. Yet that righteousness of the Apostle Paul, as he came to explain it, could not deliver him at all as Saul of Tarsus. And so, to say that we are justified simply by faith is to point to the instrumentality of faith as being that which leads to justification, to being right with God. So Paul, as you know, when he introduces uh, his great epistle to the Romans, tells the Romans that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And he's not ashamed of the gospel because he says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And that's a marvelous verse in and of itself. I'm not ashamed, he says, of the gospel because therein is the power of God revealed. But that's not all he says. In verse 17 he says that in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith, on the one hand, for faith or to faith, on the other hand, to everyone who believes, whether they are Jew or Gentile. So that we discover that whether you are Jewish or Gentile, that the only standard that Paul says is acceptable to God is the righteousness that comes from God. A righteousness that is alien to ourselves because we cannot keep the law, and as we discover, we break the law. And so this is the great question of the ages. How can a person be right with God? Even Christians, I think, sometimes struggle in their assurance of faith when they question, how can I still be right with God when I have committed so many sins? When I have done such and such and such and such, how can God still love me? How can God care for me? How can God proclaim me, accept 
me as righteous? How can he say that I am justified by faith when all of these things uh, uh, affect my life? The point that Paul would make is that those things that affect us are all taken care of by our justification. And then as we live in sanctification by the power of the Spirit, we can put to death the deeds of the body and put to death sin and so on. It was Eliphaz, the great friend of Job, who said in Job 4.17, Can a mortal man be in the right with God? Can a man be pure before his maker? It was a valid question, right? I mean, here's Job, who is described by God as righteous and blameless in all the earth. And now Eliphaz, in talking to Job in his opening statement, comes up with this statement that, is it possible for someone to be right with God? And Job responds or asks a similar question in Job chapter 9. He says, how can a man be in the right with God? And then the other friend, Bildad the Shuhite, he comes up with the same question. He says in chapter 25, How then can a man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? All of those questions, the same question, but entirely valid and very crucial and important to answer. And I think ultimately the only answer for that, of course, is am I right with God? And how can I be right with God if I don't know that I am? So, this is Luther's problem so long ago. This was the problem of so many and still continues to be the problem, I think, of many, many people today. How can I be right with God? But that is only half the question. Because the other half of the question really should be like this. How can God be right with me? How can God be right with me? With me. It's one thing for me to say, how can I be right with God, but how can God be right with me? And really they belong to each other, don't they? In fact, to even ask that kind of question presupposes that none of us are right with God. If you have to ask the question, how can a man be right with God, the presupposition behind that is, how, who is right with God? Can someone be right with God? Isn't that the glory of the gospel? The gospel you say you believe? Isn't that the wonder of the gospel that God accepts us? That God views us as his friends? That God actually forgives us and washes us and saves us and cleanses us? And that God actually continues to cleanse us and continues to forgive us? How gracious of God, how merciful of God. And that's the glory of the gospel, isn't it? So profound. Because the gospel would tell each of us it is absolutely possible to be right with God. You can be right with God. That prompted Augustine 1600 years ago to ask the, or to make the statement we were made for God and we are restless until we come to rest in God. Every man is restless, every woman is restless until they rest in God. But how do you rest in God? You just say, I believe, and therefore I'm at rest with God. No, there are many great things that we have to consider. You have to consider that God himself is righteous and you're not righteous. So how do you reconcile your unrighteousness with the righteousness of God? So this question, can I be right with God, is surely the most necessary question of all time. You know, philosophers will continue to debate, is there, is there a God? Can I prove that there's a God? 
What theorem, what axiom can I come up with? What proposition can I come up with that says there is a God? And they will continue to ask those questions. What is sin? How do I define sin? Are we all sinners? And on and on it goes. But isn't this the real pertinent question? Are you right with God? That's it. Nothing else, just are you right with God? That's the most important, the most vital question any person can ever ask in their entire lives. At the same time, we recognize, I think, that there's a massive problem. That problem we all know is sin. Just a three-letter word. Sin. Sin is not a mistake. We make mistakes. Sin is something more profound than just making a mistake. Sin is something that is deeply rooted within us that causes everything we do to be sinful. We touch everything, we think, we act, we behave. Sin is always with us. In fact, the Apostle Paul understood this so clearly in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 when he made this statement, no one is righteous. No, not. How many? One. Not one. Not one person, Paul says, is righteous. And then he makes another startling Statement, he says, no one seeks after God. You hear people lots of times, I'm searching for God, I'm seeking for God. But the Bible says, no one seeks for God. Because whatever they are seeking for, it's not seeking for the living and the true God of Scripture. It's seeking a God of their own making, of their own ideas, whatever it is. A God that suits them, a God that's nice to them, a God that's kind to them, a God that's love for them, whatever it is, to resolve all their problems and maybe, worse of all, to give them untold benefits of wealth and prosperity in health and so on. No, Paul says, there's no one righteous. And yet, righteousness, according to Solomon, is the only thing that delivers you from death. So if no one is righteous, and only righteousness delivers from death, then we're all dying, and we all got no hope. But yet the gospel is the complete antithesis of that, isn't it? It provides us with light at the end of the tunnel. There's hope in the gospel, isn't there? In fact, Paul's diatribe against the nature of humanity in Romans chapter 3 and the depravity of humanity is simply to conclude that we are all under sin. That's why we do what we do, because we're under sin, under its power, under its control, and we are naturally sinners. Now here's a thing to think about. If you were not sinful, and if you were not a sinner, what would you be? You'd be righteous. That's the only alternative, right? If you're not sinful, and you're not a sinner, you have to be righteous. And so when Paul says you're not righteous, no one is righteous, the conclusion must be we're all sinful. And that's exactly his conclusion. And so in chapter 1 and chapter 2 deals with the, the guilt of the Gentiles and the guilt of the Jews and concludes, therefore, that we are all sinners and under the judgment of God. So the real question still is, how can you and I, how can we be righteous before God? Or to put it another way, how can the unrighteous be righteous? How can the unrighteous, who cannot change themselves, who are naturally not righteous, how can the unrighteous person be righteous? Well, I think there are two things you have to say right up front, right? Number one, you have to know that you're unrighteous. You have to acknowledge, I'm unrighteous. Yeah, I agree with Paul. 
I agree with the Bible that I am unrighteous. That's true. And I have to know what kind of righteousness, on the other hand, secondly, is acceptable to God. What does God accept as righteousness? Notice here in chapter 11 and verse 4 that riches, your money in the bank, your 401k, your pension, property, whatever it is, your riches do not profit in the day of wrath. In fact, they will rise up against you and speak to condemnation and so on. No, riches do not profit in the day of wrath. That tells you another thing. Nobody can buy their way into heaven. You can't come with your millions or, or maybe you don't have millions, your hundreds of thousands, and say to God, now look, I've done a lot of good things with my funds that you gave me. I've, I've used them wisely and I've saved them up for you. No, that will never gain entrance into God's heaven. No. In fact, there are many people who don't believe in God who do many wonderful things with their money. Right? Charitable. A lot, of a lot of philanthropy going around. In fact, philanthropy is talked much today uh, among those who are very wealthy as a means of redistribution of wealth, which in and of itself is another idea altogether. But they talk about philanthropy as if it's, it's good. And it is good in one sense, of course, because philanthropy can benefit many and charity can benefit many. But it will never, ever, ever deliver in the day of wrath. God's day of judgment, no, will never deliver. So you can do many wonderful things, but at the judgment, all your money, all your good deeds, all the things you think you have done, they don't count before God. They don't count before God. Now there's no such thing as forgiveness if you get to heaven by your own good works. Because we're never, we're never saved by good works can't be saved by good works because there is no one who is good. Now you either accept the scripture, there is no one righteous or not. There's no one good. No one who seeks after God. No one who understands. No one, not a select few, no one comprehends God and His righteousness. No one is good. So if you somehow could get to heaven and say that you were forgiven by your good works, that would not be forgiveness, in fact, you wouldn't be at heaven. Access to God, or per per perhaps this is even better, acceptance with God. That's the issue, right? Not just, can I go to God, but will God accept me when I come to Him? This access or acceptance to God is never by your nature, because it's unrighteous. So it's not accepted by God, and it's never by your money or your wealth, as Solomon says here, even though you have lots of it. And it's never by your works, good deeds, philanthropy, charity, whatever it is. Those things are all just removed by the Apostle Paul and by the Bible. So what do we have? What are we left with, right? So the Bible is simply the account of God actively pursuing sinful human beings to save them who cannot by themselves save themselves. In other words, when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, it is not Adam and Eve who seek God and look for God, it is God who came looking for them. Adam, where are you? Of course, God, God knew exactly where Adam was, under what exact bush Adam was hiding. He knew exactly where he was. Where are you, Adam? 
Because he wants Adam to come out. And he wants Adam to confront his sinfulness. I knew that I had sinned. That's why I hid myself. Have you eaten of the tree? Yep. There it is. Disobedience. Simple act. Adam ruined. And everybody else from Adam ruined in the process. The gospel is about bringing people not through an act or a work of themselves into a right relationship with God. That's the gospel. Bring anything else to the gospel, you have another gospel, like Galatians chapter 1 says. And if you have another gospel, you have another Jesus, who's not the Jesus of the gospels. And so what you have is that if we are to be brought into a right, living, valid relationship with God, it's going to be on God's terms and by God himself. Or to put it another way, it's only God who saves. It's not me. I don't save myself. It's God who saves us. In fact, Jonah, in the belly of the fish, understood that explicitly in chapter 2, verse 9, when he said, salvation is of Yahweh. Belongs to God only, salvation. If anybody's going to get me out of the fish, it's God. If anybody's going to save me, it's God. That's true, right? Salvation is only of God. That's why Luther said that this justification is the main doctrine of Christianity. Do away with justification by faith and you have no Christianity. Because justification is about how you can be right with God. And so that's why many consider the central theme of the gospel to be justification. To have a legal, legitimate standing before a holy God that God says is right. I accept you. Because you have this legal standing with Him. I say legal because only God can declare you legal. It's like if you go to court, for example, and you're the criminal. It's only the judge who can say, legally, you're free or you're not free. It's only the judge who has the power. It's not the lawyer defense or prosecuting either of them who says you are free no it's the judge who determines this is the end you're free or you're not free even though you have a jury it's the judge who pronounces yay or nay and it is the same with God only God pronounces us righteous or still unrighteous which will it be if I cannot be righteous through my own efforts, through my works, my wealth, my nature, my, my obedience, which is actually disobedience, but I might think it's obedience. If I cannot be justified by my own efforts, how can I be? That's the question of the ages. And the answer is profoundly simple, isn't it? I need another righteousness. Not mine. But I need another righteousness. And the only righteousness that God accepts is God's righteousness. His righteousness. That's the only righteousness God accepts. So the only righteous standard that God accepts is God's standard that He has laid down and is in and of Himself. A righteous and a holy God. Now you know the gospel, as glorious and as beautiful as it is, it shows us many things, doesn't it? I mean, you could spend the rest of your life just meditating on the themes of the gospel. But here are two things that, among many others, that we must understand. Number one, the gospel reveals to us the impotence of humanity. 
the impotence of humanity, no power to overcome sin. None. Because no one is righteous. No one seeks for God. Or, as 2 Corinthians says, the natural man doesn't understand spiritual things. They are foolishness to him. Cannot comprehend them. Cannot grasp them. The natural man. The sinful man. Sin is within our nature. And because sin is within us, sins come out of us. That's the first thing. I have no power to overcome sin within. The second thing is I have no ability. The inability of humanity. You cannot choose God. You cannot choose Jesus. Because no one seeks for God. So how do you come to Jesus if no one seeks God? How do you come to Him? You cannot choose God. You're unable to do so. It's God, you see, who must come to us. And that's the beauty of the cross and the gospel, isn't it? That God has come to us and says, this is what I've done for you. I know this is true for myself. That before I became a Christian, no spiritual inclination to go to Jesus. No spiritual desire to be what the Bible says I should be. Nothing. In fact, the Bible would say I hated God. I despised God. I rejected God. I cared nothing for God. And so would everybody else before they became a Christian would say exactly the same things. They were in darkness, but when the gospel came, light shone on them and in them. Christ came. So no, we don't possess the spiritual inclination, the spiritual power, the spiritual willing. None of us possess that. This is why we cannot say we're better than others. Because none of us seek after God. So it's the nature of man, because of Adam's sin and Adam's guilt, it's the nature of man to rebel and to sin. It's not a pleasant subject, is it? But yet it's a very real subject. Do you know why? Because you and I, every single day of our lives, have to wrestle with sin. Even as Christians. We struggle, we fight with sin, against sin. We still have sin. There's nobody perfect. No, it's only when we get to glory and sin is removed from us that we shall be in that righteous position. In fact, every time you do sin, you are reminded of God and what God thinks about sin. Every time you sin, every time you have a bad thought, every time you do something that is sinful, you are reminded if you are a Christian that that is wrong because you know the right but you see, the unbeliever doesn't know that. Oh, he may have some moral code, like I shouldn't murder somebody. But in his heart, he's very angry and very bitter and has very bad thoughts about somebody else. Jesus says, it's the same as murder, isn't it? You don't have to go around and sleep with other men or women. No, you can do it right here and here just as easily. And there it is for you. And so we discover that we are all of us in this terrible situation. Sin is a terrible thing. But it's the gospel, isn't it? And it's only the gospel. It's not Buddha, Vishnu, Garvana. It's not the Buddhist. It's not Shinto. It's not the animal, animistic religions of Africa that even offer you 
salvation like this. It's only the gospel that shows you what we're really like. and Describes in precise detail my character, my nature, and what I'm like. And the thing is, this is not my salvation, it's not my plan. This is God's salvation, right? This is why I think uh, the, the Luthers and the Calvins and all of the Reformers were so taken up with the gospel. The great themes of the gospel make up the gospel. It's the gospel. It's what Jesus did for me. The gospel assures us that God forgives sinners. In God's salvation then you find forgiveness from God and you find hope with God. And how do you know that? Because of the cross. Because Jesus died for sinners. God gave His Son. Then God abandoned His Son. Bearing our sins. Bearing His judgment. God's judgment and wrath against our sin. You see, it's only through redemption that we understand righteousness, the righteousness of God. So the work of Jesus in his death and on the cross is what shows us how we can be right with God. Imagine Jesus if he didn't die. How would you be right with God? Because you need his death, not just his active obedience and his passive and, and but also his passive obedience in suffering not just his active obedience in keeping God's law on your behalf but his actual death as a sacrifice because that's what God requires the shedding of blood the remission of sins through the shedding of blood so Jesus must die and he's the perfect sacrifice he's the only sacrifice for me sometimes i think as christians we easily get over Jesus's death we should never be over Jesus' death. I don't think Paul the Apostle ever forgot what Jesus did for him, right? God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. If I'm going to boast about anything, Paul says, if I'm going to glory in anything, let it just be the cross of Jesus. Because that's what he did for me. Now, you know, Paul knows what he's talking about, doesn't he? Because as Saul of Tarsus, he tried to keep the law. He's a good Jew. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So he's trying to observe, to keep the law of God. And he discovers that the standard of God is beyond him. He keeps reaching for it, reaching for it. Can't reach it, can't keep it. Because nobody is righteous. And nobody can do that. The interesting thing about self-righteousness, which the Pharisees were completely complicit in, guilty of is that it condemns you so if self-righteousness condemns me then Christ's righteousness converts me that's the point right so this is what Paul says in Romans 3 listen to this verse 20 he says that by the works of the law the law no human being will be justified in God's sight notice that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Why? Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the whole purpose of the law, to show that you and I are sinners. It brings the knowledge of sin. So God's law then does something else. It doesn't convert. Instead, it convicts and condemns us. That's what the law of God does, because it cannot be kept, even though the law is God's righteous standard. But you can't keep it. And if you could keep it, then God would accept you. Because you'd be keeping what His standard is, His standard of righteousness. But none of us can keep God's law. 
In fact, once you break the law of God, you cannot be righteous ever by the law. Because you just break it once, you're condemned. You're guilty forever. So the law can never save us. Good works, the works of the law cannot save us. So it's the gospel then, right? It's the cross of Jesus, not the law, that shows us how God accepts us and how we can be right with Him. Now I want to show you that from Scripture. So will you turn with me to Romans chapter 3. I've already been referencing some of Romans 3, but let's look at Romans 3, verses 21 through 28. Romans 3, verses 21 through 28. And just listen to what Paul says. He's just said in verse 20, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now look at verse 21. But, so here's the contrast to verse 20. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, which is righteous. But now God's righteousness has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, notice those words, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you believe that? See, see, that's what he says here. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Christ for all who believe. And there's no distinction because everybody, notice verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how are these all that have sinned to be justified? Look at verse 24. They are justified by His grace as a gift. So there it is. Justification is a gift. Through the redemption, the cross, the work of Jesus on Calvary that is in Christ Jesus, whom, notice the text, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. word propitiation means satisfaction. To satisfy God's justice. So God put forward Jesus, gave His Son to, uh, as a propitiation by His blood to be received only by faith, verse 25, and this was to show the righteousness of God because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins and it was to show at the present time His righteousness so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, God just can't justify you by Himself and by yourself and then say, You're righteous and I'm righteous because God cannot do that. He'd be unrighteous to do that. He needs another perfect righteousness on your behalf so that God can exact from the just one, from Jesus Himself, the perfect one, lavish upon Him or put upon Him all His wrath, all His judgment, and condemn His Son, who is innocent and blameless, but who takes your place, and therefore God can still be just with you, and still be the justifier of the one who believes Jesus. That's the gospel. No works, no good deeds, no riches to buy your way out of judgment, just a gift, grace, right? Even faith is described in terms of being a gift, like Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God, so that no one may boast. So you've got no ground to stand on and say, I contributed, 
I earned my salvation. I did something to be saved. Nothing. You just have to receive it by faith, right? That's the good news of the gospel. So now I know the law brings wrath and the law brings judgment, but the gospel, the cross, displays love and brings reconciliation with God. So how are you going to be right with God? You need Jesus. Simple, right? You need His righteousness. Not yours or someone else's, because that'll never do. No, just Christ. So, justification is really God's justification of sinners. It's not me justifying you or justifying myself, but God justifying sinners. And it's by grace. And the thing about grace is you can never earn grace, right? You don't work for grace, otherwise it's not free. Otherwise it's not grace. No, grace is free and it's undeserved, but you only can receive it by faith, this grace of God. Believe it. That this is what God did for me in Christ. That's why it's, for by grace, through faith, you are saved. Now you know, many of you might be Christians. And you say, I know that. Doesn't it still amaze you? Doesn't it still cause you to wonder that God has actually done that for you? Or have you lost sight of that? And now you're about your business, and business of life is pretty tough. Have you forgotten how you were saved? By grace, through faith, can you ever lose the wonder and the comprehension of such a thing? God's grace can only be demonstrated because of the cross. That's where God's grace is, at the cross. If it's not there, then... Everywhere else is just wrath and judgment. But the wrath of God is on Jesus at the cross and the grace of God comes to us. So why is the cross important, right? I mean, what's the big deal about Jesus dying on the cross? Many people have died on the crosses. Right? Crucifixions happened in the Roman Empire by the thousands. Why just Jesus and His death on the cross? I mean, what about the two thieves? Okay, they're bad guys, so they'll never count for you, right? But let's say it was a very righteous guy dying on the cross like Saul of Tarsus. No can do because he's guilty. The most righteous man in all of humanity put Job on the cross. No can do. Can't save you. Only the one who is in in and of himself absolutely righteous, Jesus himself, can do that for us. That's why Jesus must die on the cross. And through his death, he brings God to us, and we are reconciled with God, and the judgment of God is poured out against our sin at the cross. At the cross. That's why Romans 3.24 puts it like this, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I don't think I can ever get over that. But Jesus was condemned because of my sins. And the wrath of God fell on God's Son, on the Lord Jesus Christ, so that I would be free and forgiven. How can you get over that, right? Why should God accept Jesus? Well, He's the only one righteous. God requires righteousness. You can't provide it. Jesus provides it. So that's why Jesus is accepted. He's righteous. He's holy. He's perfect. 
His nature is not sinful like ours. So he's the perfect sacrifice. Innocent. Blameless. And upon that one God pours his judgment for our sins. Right? So the cross is a substitution, really. We talk about a substitutionary, vicarious atonement. Jesus dying in my place as my substitute. So the cross is Jesus for me. And on the cross, only Jesus can do what I need to be done to save me. Only Jesus can do that. Now, you know, you may have thoughts about Jesus only on Sunday. And I pray that's not true if you're a Christian. In fact, I'd say if that were true, you would not be a Christian if you only have thoughts about Jesus on Sunday. No, Jesus, Jesus occupies our hearts and our minds and our lives because he has saved us by grace. And he has shown us himself. This man, Jesus, God's son, who kept the law perfectly, right? By his obedience in his human nature, so that his obedience becomes our merit. Because my merit is not my works. My merit is Jesus and his righteousness. My sins imputed to Jesus, his righteousness imputed to me. Great transaction at the cross, right? That's me free. If my sins are put on Jesus and His righteousness is put on me, God accepts me. And He judges Jesus and not me. That's the cross. That's the gospel. Right? Not that I have an inherent righteousness because there's no one who is righteous. So I need an alien righteousness, His righteousness, to be imputed to me. Credited to my account. And God does it. I don't do it. God does it. And if God does that, then what's the result of it? Forgiveness, freedom, salvation is the result of such a a work by God. Sin is a horrible curse, isn't it? I mean, we're all under under its judgment. We're guilty of it and we're defiled by it. So here's what happens. In justification, it fixes our guilt problem. And in sanctification, it fixes our defilement problem. For the rest of our lives, we are cleansing ourselves because of that initial work of justification. So an ongoing sanctification works to cleanse us of the defilement of sin. But as to the guilt of sin, one time, in a single offering, He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified by justifying us by His grace freely. That's why we say salvation is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. If you gave me a gift, let's say it was my birthday. I'd like my birthday to be every day, you know. But if you gave me a gift, I would receive the gift. Because I know why you've given me the gift. It's my birthday. And so God gives you a gift. And yet so many of us struggle to accept the fact that God could actually give me the gift of salvation, of forgiveness. Because many Christians are walking around with the baggage of God won't forgive me because I've done that again and again and again and again. How can he forgive me? I'll tell you how he forgives you. Jesus. That's all. Done. So you can go to him because Jesus now having made atonement, sacrifice, lives in the power of an endless life in the presence of God to intercede on the basis of His work. That's the work of a high priest, isn't it? Make sacrifice, 
Make intercession. You cannot make intercession unless you've made sacrifice. Jesus has done it and is doing intercession for us now. I love this work. This is the gospel. Could preach this gospel for a thousand more years and never tire of its themes, right? Could never tire of reading Romans 3, for example. If you ever feel like you've gotten tired of reading it, then you've forgotten what God has done. Come back. Come back to the gospel. Come back to the cross, right? You see, the thing is about God's salvation, you can always see it. You always can see the results and the evidence and the fruit of it. There's change in people's lives. In fact, people's conversations change. They start to talk differently. They start to talk about good things and beautiful things and they talk about God and loving God and they talk about loving other Christians and loving people who hate them. They talk about those things. Their lives have changed. Their conversations have changed. They have been transformed by grace and are being transformed by grace. Do you know if you are being transformed by grace? What's the proof of it? Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. You'll observe who loves me, who knows me. You'll see it. You see, biblical faith is not a blind faith. That's not faith. No, biblical faith is believing faith, if I can put it like that. It latches on to Christ. So justification finds me as guilty, as unclean, but it doesn't leave me there. It justifies me. And I'm justified, and I'm cleansed, I'm forgiven. And the result of being justified, Paul said in Romans 5.1, is that you have peace with God. God is actually at peace with you because of Jesus. That's the question, right? How can God be right with me? That's the answer. Through Christ. So Proverbs 11.4 is absolutely right, isn't it? Righteousness delivers us from death. Money can't buy it. You'll never get righteous by money. You'll never be saved by money. Riches do not deliver us. In the day of wrath or judgment. Just look in chapter 11 and go to verse 28. Same chapter, Proverbs eleven twenty-eight. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, right? But the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. You see it? Whoever trusts in his riches will fall because riches do not deliver in the day of death. But the righteous, verse 28, chapter 11, the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. That's why we sang that great hymn by Nicholas von Zinzendorf, Jesus, His blood, my righteousness. Right? You see, only Jesus' blood delivers you, His righteousness delivers you on the day of wrath. Only Jesus. Only Christ. Can ever say, let's make sure of this, that we are righteous in and of ourselves. It's not like I've got now an inherent righteousness and I'm righteous. There's no one righteous, only Jesus. But He imputes His righteousness to us, and from that moment on we desire righteousness, we desire this, this beautiful life. No, we, we have to have, if we want to be right with God, an imputed righteousness, and a righteousness from outside of us, freely given to us, which God accepts on our behalf. 
And justification, by the way, is never alone. It always leads to sanctification. Always. So, personal Christian living, your life as a Christian, is grounded in justification and expresses itself every day in sanctification. Until you, Jesus comes or you go home to be with the Lord. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.17, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. That's how you live, by continuing to believe this gospel. So justification always shows itself. It never is by works, but it always has works. It always produces. It's always fruitful. It always shows evidence, real justification. So I want to show you that, just a few verses in Proverbs 11, for example. There's so many verses here that contrast the righteous with the unrighteous, or with the wicked, right? So let me just go through them with you. Look at verse 3. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. This is Proverbs 11. Verse 5. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. Verse 6. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. Verse 8. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked walks into it instead. 9. With his mouth the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge the righteous are delivered. 10. When it goes well with the righteous, city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Verse 11. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. By the mouth of the wicked, it's overthrown. Verse 18. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. 19. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live. He who pursues evil will die. Verse 21, be assured an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Verse 23, the desire of the righteous ends in good, the expectation of the wicked in wrath. Verse 28, whoever trusts in riches will fall, the righteous flourish like a green leaf. Verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, whoever captures souls is wise. 31, if the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. Well, there's a lot of stuff about righteousness, right? He just belabors the point over and over again that the fruit of this righteousness is righteousness. It's seen, it's shown, it shows itself. Did you know that the Proverbs list the righteous 57 times? They list righteousness 20 times. They list upright 17 times. Jesus in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 21 is called the righteous one. And Simon Peter says he suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous. Just stop on that phrase. He suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Why did Jesus die? To bring us to God. Because we are unrighteous and he's righteous. And so Adam's sin, which led to condemnation for all men, Paul says, but Jesus' act of righteousness leads to justification for all. This is why the sinful tax collector who went up to pray at the temple with the Pharisee goes home justified and the Pharisee does not. Because the Pharisee is taken up with his self-righteousness. This is why Zacchaeus 
when salvation comes to his house, reforms himself. This is why Saul of Tarsus believes and is converted. Or this is why Rahab the harlot does what she does because she believes. All because Jesus died for sinners and all because Jesus gives us a righteous standing with God and all because Jesus as a consequence of the cross changes your life forever. Transforms you. That's salvation, right? Transformation. So, let me summarize. Number one. The only righteousness that saves you and that delivers you is God's righteousness. Okay? It's not your righteousness, not my righteousness that saves because we have none. Romans 3.10 If you claim a righteousness for yourself, it is self-righteous, always. Now, the only righteousness we can claim is Jesus. Now the question is, is he your righteousness? That's the first thing. Don't be like the Pharisees who are self-righteous and Jesus condemned them, right? Number two, you can never be right with God by keeping the law because nobody can keep the law. Galatians 3.11, no one is justified before God by the law. Okay? Because nobody can keep it. In fact, the law has a singular purpose to judge us to condemn us, to show us that we're guilty, or as Paul says, it's a school teacher, a master, to show us Jesus. To show us we're guilty, you need Christ, who kept the law for you. So that's what the law does. It points us to Jesus. It condemns us. And Jesus kept the law right, perfect obedience. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us, because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Galatians 3.13. That's Jesus. Number three. God only accepts Jesus as your legal righteous standing. Only Christ, right? His life, His death, brings life and brings acceptance before God. And righteousness, the righteousness of God, only comes to us through faith, through believing in Jesus. For all who believe. Romans 3.22. So now, finally, I just have a question. Is that what you believe? And is your life evidence that that is what you believe? It's the only question, right? Is Jesus, and is Jesus alone, your righteousness with God? If not, then why don't you ask Him to save you? If Jesus is not your only righteousness, then why don't you go to Christ and ask Him to save you and to change your life and to transform it? Because that's why He died, to save us and to give us His life and His righteousness. That's grace, isn't it? That's the gospel. That's the cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that according to your word, we are justified not by works of righteousness which we have done, but we are justified freely by the grace of God in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect law-keeping for us who could not keep the law, his merit, his righteousness for us who are unrighteous. Oh, help us to understand these truths. They're so simple, yet they're so profound. And they mean the difference between life and death between judgment, wrath, or eternal life. 
And so we pray that we might know Christ this morning. Thank you for your word that points us always to Jesus Christ. May we love these things that we've heard this morning. May we believe them. May we confess them to one another. May we talk about them with each other. May we share them with the world. So we thank you for your word and thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only righteousness with you. These things we pray and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you'll take your...